Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of MaxCast, a podcast about Muslim leaders and professionals thriving in various domains and speaking on successes and failures. My name is Daniel Sardar, and I will be your host for today's session. We are living in a time where there's so much turmoil and uncertainty happening around the world. You can hear it, read it, or see it constantly on every media platform. Just off the top of my head, climate change, food insecurity, gender inequality, and racism. These global issues, however, have also fueled a generation of catalysts and disruptors that are challenging the status quo and driving the social change that our societies need. So, enter Fahad Tariq. Fahad's day job is on Bay Street as Vice President of Equity Research at Credit Suisse. He is also the founder and CEO of Shift, a not-for-profit that transforms animal, and soon human waste in reliable and expensive clean energy in remote villages on two different continents. For his work with Shift, Fahad has received numerous accolades, including the Emerging Leader Award from CP Ontario and Rising Star of the Year from Ascend Canada. Fahad is a CPACA and also holds an MBA from the Ivy Business School. So, Fahad, welcome to MaxCast. Assalamualaikum. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we're constantly looking for, for guests that are making a, a difference in our communities. And uh, I recently joined MaxCast and you're at the top of my list, you know, uh, not just as a, as a fellow CPA, but the work that you're doing is shift, mashallah, amazing. And hopefully we get to dive more into it. Uh, you know, I know the people that have done these podcasts before, and I'm just honored to be even considered, uh, you know, to, to be a guest. Great. Thank you, Fahad. So let's start right from the beginning. Tell us a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. When did you know this was the path you wanted to pursue? And more importantly, what is the genesis of Shift? Yeah, Bismillah. So maybe uh, I'll start a little bit about just my family background because it feeds into kind of just a view on entrepreneurship. So, you know, my family, we're an immigrant family. Um, I'm a first generation Canadian, basically. Uh, I came here when I was seven years old. So, you know, if you think about the traditional South Asian upbringing, uh, a huge focus on education, a huge focus on getting a career, a professional career. And so that was kind of my worldview for a long time. And so I would actually say, you know, I was thinking about this. I don't think there's a single uh, entrepreneur in my family um, that, I, that I'm aware of, at least. So no one's done anything from like starting a business kind of perspective. Um, you know, I'm talking about this generation or my parents' generation. My grandfather, you know, I think he, he had a, he had a factory and things like that. But it's, it's not something that was common in my family. So for me, getting that mindset was almost like unlearning the immigrant mindset of, you know, the professional career and you work your way up. Um, I think the turning point for me, you know, uh, like yourself, I'm, I'm a CPACA. Um, I worked at Ernst & Young for a number of years. And during that time when I was working, I mean, I'll be honest, there were a lot of days when I was doing the work and I was thinking like, I can't see myself kind of doing this, you know, following that progression to partner or whatever. Um, and for a lot of people that that's fine. You know, my sister is a partner, for example, alhamdulillah. So, but for me, it just, you know, that as that time passed, I realized it, that's not where I see myself. So I already started getting an itch of wanting to do something different. Um, and so I actually ended up going to, uh, you know, leaving work and going to an MBA program full time. And it was there that I think entrepreneurship became uh, much more tangible for me. Um, the people I was surrounded with, I actually did a, 
uh, a specialization in entrepreneurship during the MBA program, took certain courses that, um, you know, kind of prepared me for that, talked to people who had started multiple businesses before uh, they were mentors as well. So that was the real turning point. Uh, and then the genesis of Shift was actually a business competition. So during the MBA program, we entered what was called the HALT Prize, H-U-L-T. Um, and it's a social enterprise competition. And basically what you do each year, there's a challenge for a global problem that you're trying to solve from a social enterprise perspective. Uh, so something that is sustainable financially and you know can, can kind of move forward that way. So we... The, the year's challenge that year was uh, improving people's income, right? So very broad kind of challenge. And, and so people came up with all sorts of ideas. And, uh, you know, I put together a team. Uh, I started researching all sorts of ideas myself. And then I came across uh, a paper by the United Nations uh, called uh, the, human, the Potential of Human Waste, the Energy Potential of Human Waste, um, which just sounded kind of crazy. So I kind of read the article, <laughs> went down to the sources, made sure it wasn't, you know, some crazy person on the internet that put this together. And in fact, it was the United Nations that put this piece together. And I, I really couldn't uh, stop thinking about it after I read that article. And I also couldn't uh, really understand why nobody else was talking about this. We mm -hmm. talk about, you know, wind energy and solar energy and geothermal energy and all, all these other kind of renewable sources. But you know, you have this organic material waste, whether it's animal waste or human waste, that you can transform into clean energy. Like that sounds crazy. And it sounds like there's so much potential there. And so uh, long story short, we competed in the competition. We didn't end up winning. And we can talk about kind of the importance of failure sometimes. Uh, it certainly wasn't some sort of fairy tale uh, ending. Um, but uh, learned a lot. Um, and, you know, after I graduated, that idea really stuck with me and um, I started Shift. Oh, mashallah, that's a, that's a very, uh, very cool story. Um, so shift starts and then you select Pakistan as your pilot study. Why Pakistan? Yeah, so that's a good question. So my, my family originally is from Pakistan. <clears throat> so that, you know, the first consideration just practically was where do I know people that could help implement this? Um, second, where is there a need for this to begin with? So in Pakistan, there's a lot of these remote villages, and I wish I could show you some of the pictures. I think people living in Canada or North America more generally would be blown away if they realized that people still live in like mud houses or huts or with straw roof, like things you would imagine but don't really think exist in the 21st century. So that reality is there in Pakistan. So there was a practical consideration. You know, I knew people there on the ground that could get things going. Um, there was certainly a need for it. So that was number two. Um, and that, that's probably the main reason. And now, you know, we've done multiple projects there now. Uh, we're about at 15 projects, uh, supporting over 500 people, alhamdulillah. So that, that's been incredible. And now what we've tried to do is move on from Pakistan uh, to other countries as well. And that's always been the goal is to try to, you know, implement this where, where there's a need. Uh, and so the next country I'm really excited to announce is going to be Uganda. And now you might ask why Uganda, you know, very different than Pakistan. Why not India or Bangladesh? And it's kind of the same line of thinking. Number one, we, you know, one of our uh, advisory board members is very well connected in Uganda and knows uh, government agencies and knows uh, NGOs there and knows some of the communities there where there's a huge need for clean energy like this. Uh, they're off the grid as well. And, and then and then number two, again, there's, there's that need, right? These people are living in very impoverished uh, states. They don't have access to clean energy. Um, and in fact, in Uganda, they don't have access to like proper sanitation washroom facilities, mm. uh, which is something that we're hoping to help with as well. 
Oh, okay, that's great. Are you planning on, on visiting Uganda for a scouting trip uh, just to see how this is going to plan out? Yeah, so Uganda is very far. So <laughs> the scouting, I would have loved to do uh, like a scouting trip, come back, think about it. But I think what we're doing instead, just try to minimize costs and travel, especially during COVID, is, um, you know, we our, our, our advisory board member, Dr. Corinne Wallace, um, she, uh, she, you know, she's familiar. So we're relying on her to identify the village. When we go there, um, it'll be a village that's already been selected. So it's not so much scoping it. It's more going there and then talking to the people. And we have a pretty rigorous process. So we do like a pre-implementation analysis and then a post-implement, like then do the implementation and then post-implementation analysis. So we're trying to make it a very rigorous, um, you know, study where we can actually, you know, point to numbers and things like that, where we say, this is what uh, was the reality before from a health perspective, from a um, energy perspective, from a cost perspective. And this is the reality afterwards. So the plan inshallah in 2022 is to visit. I've never been to uh, Uganda before. Uh, so I'm excited about that. But, you know, it, it's been a challenge. Uh, Uganda in particular has been very challenged by COVID. Uh, low vaccination rates as a result of low availability of vaccines. Uh, their healthcare system is nowhere close to, you know, what we have in, in developed countries. So they've been dealing with that crisis first and foremost. But now that they're kind of managing that a bit more, we found a way to start progressing the project. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, this time next year that, you know, we'll have our project up and running. Inshallah. Uh, Inshallah. Inshallah. No, that sounds terrific. Inshallah. So let's take a step back, Fahad, and, and talk about the, the the engineering behind an energy dome. So in layman's terms, could you explain to us how shift uh, energy domes convert animal waste into reusable energy for the villages? Yeah, for sure. And maybe maybe I'll first pause on the term energy dome. So I should say one of the reasons our team came up with that term is because it's easier to understand and visualize. That's actually not even a technical term. We, we just kind of made it up. The real technical term is called anaerobic uh, digester. And, you know, in layman terms, the way it works is, and if you go on our website, you can see a nice like infographic that, or like nice animation that we've put together to simplify it. But essentially imagine a, an, a dome made of bricks and mortar underground. You have an inlet pipe on one side and what people are loading into that in, in, the, one, in the projects that we have is generally cow waste, so cow manure. Uh, so they're loading that in, mixing it with water. It goes down that inlet pipe into this underground airtight dome. Uh, and it's very important that it's airtight and oxygen-free. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. And then what happens is we have an outlet pipe on the other side where uh, methane gas, and there's some carbon dioxide as well, um, it, gets, it gets piped to people's homes directly. Uh, we also have on the other side of the dome, uh, a, a basically a container where the physical waste that's left over after the energy has been extracted, uh, that kind of gets collected there. And what the farmers can do uh, is then take that and then scatter it in the field as nutrient-rich fertilizer. So nothing gets wasted in the process. It's this completely closed loop um, uh, solution that really extracts the most energy. You get the clean energy from in a gas form, and then you also get this really nutrient-rich fertilizer that they can use in the fields. Um, now, within the dome, and I think this is a part you were uh, focusing on, the way it works is when you have um, uh, an environment without oxygen, an anaerobic environment, uh, you have these bacteria, these microorganisms that form naturally, organically, and they break down the waste. And as a result, that releases methane gas. Now, that methane gas and some carbon dioxide, it rises to the top of the dome, and then that gets pushed out to people's homes. That, in a nutshell, is what we do. 
Um, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. My dad's like a chemical engineer. I think he'll be like embarrassed by my explanation. But in a nutshell, that, that's kind of what we do. And it's, it's actually, you know, I should mention, it's a very well-known, uh, not well-known, it's a very historical process that, that has been known for some time. Um, it's not something that Shift has, you know, invented or that we have a patent on. What we're doing is, um, you know, taking something that we think the world doesn't really know about, right? It exists. The science, the scientific community has known about it. Um, uh, people in developing countries generally have known about it. But we're trying to bring that to the world and also do it in a way that's scalable. So our technology is really, um, you know, creating these domes that can be scaled to different sizes depending on how many animals there are. Uh, whether you're using just animal waste or food waste as well, um, you know, whether the community has uh, 30 people or it has 500 people, a scalable technology is what we're aiming to do and something that can be replicated around the world. Oh, that's great to hear. And, and going back to the dome for just one second, what is the cost to, to build one of these domes? And uh, more importantly, where is the funding coming from to build these? Yeah, so... Um, Again, it depends on the size of the dome, the bigger, the more expensive. Um, in this environment, actually with COVID, things have just become more expensive. And you imagine like a remote community, you know, think, you think it's hard for supply chains to bring us like things we ordered, let alone like going in the middle of a village um, and getting materials there. So, you know, a typical dome we say costs about uh, $2,500 uh, Canadian. And uh, that would be a dome that could supply, I'm just trying to put it in layman terms. So that would be a dome uh, of a size that could supply maybe enough energy for 30 to 40 people, right? So a pretty normal size village in Pakistan. And so if you take a step back and think about the cost, uh, you know, 2,500 for permanent infrastructure, right? This thing is not going to break down. There's no moving parts. Uh, we purposely designed it without moving parts so that it doesn't require maintenance. It's all brick and mortar. It's PVC pipes. You know, it's all things that can last a long period of time or can be easily replaced if the pipe gets damaged. Uh, but, you know, you're talking about 2,500 for something that will last 50 years, 75 years. And as long as the animal waste is being loaded, uh, it will continue to provide that clean energy. So, uh, you know, we think it's a, a very, uh, you know, affordable solution and something that you can replicate very quickly. Now, the project we're doing in Uganda, you know, it's going to cost more than that because it's a much larger project. It involves building a washroom facility as well. Uh, we're going to actually collect human waste for the first time, which is like super exciting. I know that sounds crazy to be excited about that, but that, that's something our team is really excited we'll, we'll, about. We'll, we'll, touch converting human we'll touch on waste. that in a bit. Yeah, we'll touch on that too. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it depends on the size, but generally speaking about 2,500. And, you know, when we uh, when we talk to people, um, a lot of people, they, they're familiar with that, that kind of number. And so they'll say, can I donate one dome, right? Or two domes or something oh, like that. Oh, so it's a financial um, donation that people make towards the cause. That's right. Yeah, you, right. So I didn't, I didn't touch on that. So in terms of funding, we still have people. Um, so let me step back. So in the beginning, we did crowdfunding. That was how we got the project off the ground or projects off the ground. Um, and then we relied on individual donations. I mentioned people reaching out saying, you know, um, you know, a loved one passed away. I wanted to end there from Pakistan. I'd like to build a dome and honor them, put their name on the, you know, on, on the dome. And we've done many projects like that. In fact, um, our funding is actually all institutional. So there's a large Canadian charity that has backed us um, and basically told us that, you know, whatever projects you do in Uganda and more broadly in Africa, we're behind you. Oh, and that, from our team's perspective, you know, first of all, we're honored and really grateful for that. You basically have one entity that will provide the funding, whereas when you're talking to individual donors, you know, it's, 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 it's much harder to manage those relationships. And also, um, there's lots of great causes out there, and all these individuals are donating to all sorts of great worthwhile causes. And, um, you know, that's, that's challenging from a nonprofit perspective. 
And honestly, if you ask anybody working in nonprofits or for-profit entities, especially at the early stage, funding is like one of the biggest issues or challenges. And for us now, we're very grateful that we've gotten to a point where we have a dedicated uh, charity that will be providing funding for us and supporting us. So we've kind of moved away from the individual donations. Uh, although we're always happy to accept if somebody wants to say, look, I want to build a dome for such and such person um, in, in their like for, in their name to, to honor them. Uh, we're always happy to do that as well. Oh, that is wonderful to hear uh, the fact that you've actually been able to be so successful that, you know, you have a, a sponsor full time. But let's just say if a, a donor wanted to go on and donate is shiftwastenow.com the best way to, to donate? Yeah, that would be the best way. Our, our website is uh, fully secure. Uh, we use Stripe uh, on the back end. Uh, everything is secure. You can donate through your credit card. That's probably the best way to do it. Um, I, I was just trying to think if we accept any other forms of donation. I mean, that that's probably the most secure way. I, I, was, I would recommend everyone visit the website if they're interested in donating. You know, one thing I should mention is, uh, you know, I don't know many nonprofits or charities that can say this, but literally every dollar that's donated goes towards a project. So everyone on Shift's team, they're all volunteers, myself included, not a single person takes a penny uh, or makes a penny. Um, even things like website costs and administrative costs, those are covered internally. Everything goes towards the project. So we're really happy about that and we, we hope to keep it that way. That's great to hear. Thank you for the transparency as well. Um, you alluded to a few seconds ago about the challenges that you faced when you were first starting out with, uh, with Shift. Uh, maybe you can kind of uh, high level walk us through, you know, what were some of these challenges or these failures that you learned along the way? And more importantly, as Muslim, you know, how do you keep your faith at, at such a hard time when you're making such a personal sacrifice? Yeah, so, I mean, look, there's no shortage of failures or challenges. And I think that's true for pretty much any entrepreneur. I don't know if I consider myself an entrepreneur, but anyone who started something. Uh, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit, you know, there's no shortage of challenges. So for me, I mean, challenge number one was when we entered that business competition I mentioned, uh, we didn't end up winning, right? Obviously, the easier story would have been I, I come on here and I tell you we won. You know, it was a huge prize. It was a million dollars of seed funding. You know, we won the million dollars. We were on like five different continents now. Like that's that's not what happened, right? We ended up losing. So that was kind of failure or challenge number one. Uh, but like for me, my personality is, I try to obviously learn a lot from failures. And um, although it stings in the moment, I, I never lose sight of the fact that if I don't take something away from this, it's been like a useless failure almost. Um, so I took notes from what the judges said, why we weren't successful, you know, things like very clear, more clearly artic articulating our strategy, whether it was animal waste or human waste, et cetera. So I took a lot of that to heart. Um, you know, other challenges in the beginning were, you know, time was a huge challenge, right? So uh, to this day, I, Kept, I kept my day job. Um, and so finding the time to, you know, start shift and there's a lot of administrative things that need to be done up front, setting up a Canadian registered nonprofit, finding an advisory board, building out an operational team, finding people in Pakistan, right? I'm sitting here in Toronto, Canada. Like, how do I find people in like Pakistan to do this? Like all those like things take time, especially in the beginning. So time was a big challenge and constraint. Um, and then, and then probably the third thing I would say in terms of challenges was, just, just the idea itself, right? So um, on the one hand, when I explain it to you and others, they're really excited and they think like, wow, that's so interesting. Not, I don't think there's many people turning poo into power. But on the other hand, it's also a little crazy. And so it requires a bit more explanation than, you know, your usual kind of nonprofits or, or you know, uh, initiatives that we're used to, whether it's like 
um, you know, providing support, like providing food aid or providing, uh, you know, building wells. Like those are things that people are more familiar with. Um, and so if you say something like, oh, we're going to build this dome that turns poo into energy, it kind of, it's kind of what, like, what are you talking about? How, how did right? you, so that explanation, how, how did that, that parents, extra time that's needed. <laughs> how did your parents take this? Uh, I've done all my education. Now I'm going to go save the world, convert animal poo into energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, look, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, our family were immigrants. We kind of had that mind mindset and worldview. Um, you know, so obviously my parents, they're, they're, they're fully supportive and loving. And to this day, they support what, what shift is doing, obviously. Uh, but you know, they were kind of, you know, they were kind of like, well, why aren't you just focus, focusing on your career? Like that's a very common, I think, um, kind of response from, from parents when, especially immigrant parents, they came to this country for this reason, for, for us to get educated and have a better life. And they made huge sacrifices to do all of that. There's no denying that. So when you say like, oh, I'm going to start a nonprofit, I'm going to, and then, and then on top of that, not just any nonprofit, one that turns poo into power, it's kind of like, okay, that's a lot to digest there and let me process that. Uh, but alhamdulillah, it was, it was fine. And, you know, over time, I think it's become very impactful. And, and, you know, um, when you see the stories and the people who are being, who are benefiting from this, like, you know, then it all makes sense, right? That at the end of the day, uh, kind of, overwhelms or overshadows any challenges or require, requiring time or taking away from my job or my profession, like any of those things that a parent, you know, an immigrant parent might be concerned about, all of that is overshadowed by the fact that, you know, people are actually benefiting from this and there are communities that are being uplifted by this. And, um, you know, I, I wish there was a way for me to take people there and show them, inshallah, maybe one day we, we can do something like that. But I think if people really saw the reality on the ground of what was there before and what it is now after shift has come in, uh, it's night and day, actually quite literally night and day because wow. we're providing energy and electricity and things like that. So, yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's outstanding. And I think sometimes people need to see the, the tangible end result before they're fully, you know, convinced that, Hey, this is certainly a worthwhile project. And, uh, and inshallah, I know on your website, you have really cool pictures of, of the domes in Pakistan and, and, and there's people helping you there too. And you can actually see the villages and the animals, so I, I think that's certainly a, a very great way of approaching it. Now, you touched on this, you know, a lot of the majority or the Muslim parents that arrived here as immigrants, they really came here seeking better lives, you know, better lives for themselves and their children. And then so much of the social change now is being driven uh, by their kids, like millennials, like yourself. What do you think fuels this charge to make a difference in our societies? Because... Honestly, Fahad, you can just, you know, you're formally educated. You can just donate to UNSF or a hundred bucks a year. But then what is it that kind of gets you out of bed and says, no, this is part of the world that I live in and I want to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, look, first I would say there is absolutely nothing wrong with that first uh, perspective. If someone is working professionally and they're able to contribute financially, um, that's totally fine, right? Not, not everyone is going to start an organ organization. In fact, if everyone did, I think that could be cause of its own problem. Uh, but, you know, I think I think there are times when individuals need to look at the issues they care about and kind of look out there and see, is there anyone doing something meaningful for this issue? So for me, thinking about things like climate change and energy insecurity, people not having access to cooking gas and still having to use firewood, like things that are just unimaginable in the 21st century. Um, you know, that those are things that I care about. And so when I looked out there and, you know, I would be more than happy to join an organization that did something like that, but I actually couldn't find any organization that did that. 
there were some that did something similar in parts of Africa, but nobody was doing this in Pakistan. No one was was doing this more globally. No one was using this scalable technology. Um, And so I found an opportunity to, and you know, I say, I'm saying I, this is so bad, but it's the entire team, right? I'm using the wrong pronoun. It's we, like, I'm not, you know, I'm just a small component in this. But, you know, we, we found this solution and we found this niche where we could, we could create an organization to do this. Um, so that's, that's for me personally. In terms of your question about, you know, why, you know, the, the children of our immigrant parents, why they're the ones trying to implement this change. Um, I'm not sure if it's so much like the children of immigrant parents. It's just children or millennials in general. And part of it is our mindset is just, I find is completely different. The world is not static. We find that there's, you know, it's dynamic, things can change, things are changing very quickly. The other thing is we are also uh, seeing a lot of these issues a lot more prominently through social media and things like that. Um, Third, a lot of these issues are at a very late stage in their maturation. So we're not talking about like the early days of climate change or the first report has come out from the IPCC. This is like, you know, year number 30, right? Or 20 or whatever. Like we, we are well ahead in some of these issues. And so I think a lot of people, um, I'm not speaking on behalf of all millennials, but people I know at my age, um, I think they just feel like if they don't do something now, they're, you know, they're, they need to start contributing to the solution because otherwise, you know, status quo not doing anything is no longer, um, you know, is no longer tenable. Like that's not a, that's not a position you can take. We have very advanced problems that are very late stage. And you think about things like, even racism, right? It's it's now at a point where it's like it's like daily you can see things like that. Well, whether it's police brutality or uh, racism when it comes in the workplace, like these are things that, of course, like it's, this is an age old problem, but it just seems like these are becoming more mature, more pronounced. Uh, so those are some of the reasons. And then number four, I think our generation, like millennials and younger, also have tools that allow us, or at least make us feel like we can contribute more directly. So we have tools. And you think about, you know, people who, uh, if they're not starting an organization, but they just film themselves talking about an issue, um, how quickly that can spread, right? And how quickly ideas can spread. So we also have these tools that allow us to make change very directly uh, in a very kind of widespread, almost viral kind of way. Um, and so those are some of the reasons I think millennials in general are, 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 are thinking this way. Um, I, yeah, I, I would actually... If I actually think about the people who are more engaged in this, again, I think a lot of them are generally, it's an age thing. It's not so much an immigrant or not immigrant thing. I actually think, again, for immigrants particularly, it's sometimes very hard to get out of that mindset of like, my parents came here for my education. They came here for me to have a good life and be professional and buy a home and all these other things. And all of that is great. We should all strive for that as well. And a lot of what Max does is talk about these professional uh, aspirations, which is fantastic. Uh, but at the same time, I, I would completely dispel this idea that it's one or the other, uh, that it's mutually exclusive. You can definitely do both. I've done both. Um, many people I know have done both. You can you can have a great professional career that is fulfilling, um, but you can also try to do something to give back in a very meaningful way, whether it's starting an organization, donating, uh, volunteering. There's there's lots of things you can do. It, it's it's not an either or. No, those are actually very valid points, Fahad, and thank you for sharing them. So let's move on to, you know, Canada now. Uh, you know, you've done such amazing work in developing countries. Uh, shifting focus back home for just a minute. Is there an application for energy domes here in Canada? And I say that, Fahad, because, um, you know, population is rising. You're using more of the resources. You're using a lot more water. And again, when you go through a sewage treatment plant, 
there's a lot of sewage, a lot of waste, and then either you can apply it to farmland or you do something else with it. So have you give, given any thought to about uh, how this can be used here at home as well? Absolutely, we have. And, you know, um, there's kind of two contexts I'll talk about. So the first is, you know, if you think about where we're working right now, it's remote villages in these developing countries. Um, there aren't necessarily remote villages in Canada, but there are examples of indigenous communities in northern Ontario, or other parts of Canada, that you would be shocked to hear about some of the living circumstances. Um, and so I think there's some application in those communities, for sure, to provide them with clean energy produced from waste. Um, the other kind of context is more the urban context. And for that, it's exactly what you're talking about. So you think about just our homes and where all of our waste goes from the toilet and things like that. It goes to this collective sewage site and it gets processed and things like that, but nothing is actually extracted from it. Now, there is a huge opportunity there to try to transform that human waste um, and in some cases, some of the food organic waste um, into clean energy. And in fact, the city of Toronto uh, is doing a project uh, on that, a pilot project on that. Uh, I believe it's with Enbridge, but they're, they're working on this idea of renewable natural gas, RNG. Uh, and similar, like at a high level, that's basically what it is. It's reprocessing this waste to extract energy from it. And then you can use it in all sorts of things. So we, we talked about in the developing, con developing world context, using it for cooking fuel. Here in Toronto, you know, obviously that's not really a need. It would be more about trying to use it as vehicle fuel. So could you have a bus fleet that runs on renewable natural gas? Um, so those are some of the contexts in which um, this could work. So from our perspective, I think context number one probably makes more sense in the indigenous communities, some of these remote areas. Uh, context number two is, I think, like the pie in the sky long term where we want to be. That's that's kind of the vision, right? Do we get to a stage where every city, every large city in North America at least gets some of its energy need organically in this closed loop solution from our own waste that we produce or waste from farms that's produced, um, which I think would be amazing, right? You're not you're not adding an input to the system. This is existing. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's abundant. Um, and so there's a way to extract energy from it. And, 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 you know, whether it's to heat homes or use it in vehicles or use it as fuel, there's lots of different applications. Uh, but, I, you know, my long term vision is to eventually have biogas, which is a technical term right. of this gas that's produced, to have biogas in the same conversation, in the same breath as solar and wind and geothermal and nuclear, um, that someone, you know, at some point it'll be it'll be part of that conversation. Uh, that's very interesting you mentioned human waste um, because then you kind of it's like a closed circle it's like 100% recyclable it's, it becomes more sustainable and um, but but do you get some critics come up to you and tell you it's human waste that's kind of gross you know animal waste okay people don't mind picking up after their animals et cetera, et cetera. but how do you dispel the notion that human waste is just icky and let's try to stay away from it at all costs yeah, so really good question. And actually, that was I, I forgot to mention this. That's, that was one of the first challenges when we were going through that business competition. We, we initially were actually just talking about human waste exclusively. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about animal waste, but it was mostly human waste. And there's a lot of cultural stigma around human waste, of course, right? Um, which is sometimes if you take a step back, it's kind of strange to think about it. If you go to the park, right, people are so comfortable like picking up after their dog and things like that, which as not, I'm a non-dog owner, but like that would be like, that to me is strange, right? But for other people, it's like, that's okay, but human waste is like not okay. Um, and, you know, it's even more pronounced in certain countries 
where only a certain caste or communities are allowed to even process, not process, but even handle human waste, empty toilets and things like that, it becomes even a bigger cultural issue. Um, so yeah, huge problem. Um, I think, you know, I think for me, it's instead of trying to change everyone's cultural views on this globally and in Canada, and I'd rather try to come up with a solution where perhaps the end user doesn't even have to think about that, right? They're still flushing as they normally would. And it's just being processed on the back end. And they don't, they don't care where the gas comes from, where the fuel comes from, um, right? For, from a practical perspective, that won't make an impact. But I think, I think it would be an uphill battle to try to convince people to like change their mindset on you know, handling human waste. It's just, it's a very, it's a very uh, tough thing to get over. And so, you know, long term, I think we would just kind of not try to change people's minds, but just try to take it in a different direction where it's, almost like a sanitized solution where they still don't have to think about it or deal with it. It's just being processed on the back end. Okay, no, that's that's great to hear. And again, I, I think once people see the tangible benefit uh, of, 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 you know, taking the human waste and converting it into something reusable, I think, uh, you know, you know, you don't want to see how the sausage is made, but you definitely want to see the yeah. product, right? So <laughs> that's, that's, that's my uh, mentality when I, when I think about that. So, Fahad, you know, one, one more question I wanted to ask is, you know, you're working full-time on Bay Street. You know, uh, I understand you have, mashallah, a very young family as well. Um, and you're operating on really potentially two different continents. So, like, what is that like operationally for you? And, and what kind of personal sacrifices have you made to get to where you are? You know, people sometimes don't see, like, how many times you failed or, like, got, you know, you, they see the end result, but not, like, the product in the background. So like, you know, talk, talk about, talk about the sacrifices. Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe even before sacrifices your question about how people don't see some of the failures. And I think that's kind of important because, you know, whatever you see out there as the end result for any, anyone that you deem successful, uh, I can, I can guarantee that it doesn't look like that on the inside. Right. So, um, you know, just a recent example, I talked about expanding in Uganda. It wasn't, you know, I make one phone call and, uh, you know, a local entity in Uganda says, you know what, we're on board. Everything sounds great. That's, that's not how it works. It took multiple, it took months of trying to find the right organization, uh, organization saying this is not really part of our mandate, uh, thinking about funding, the donor saying, you know, we're not too, too sure if we're going to fund this part of the project versus, you know, so there's all sorts of like iterations that it goes through. But in the end, everyone just sees Shift is now in Uganda. Wow, it's what you know. It's, it's it must have been such a great transition from uh, Pakistan to Uganda. But it takes a long uh, time to do things like that, and there's so many little steps in the way and so many challenges that you face on a daily basis. It's actually hard to like enumerate all of them. From a sacrifice perspective, look, I I, I don't think of it necessarily as sacrifice or framing it that way. For me, I just you know people might think like I'm sacrificing leisure time or something like that, but. For me, it's like if you are passionate about something and, you, and and a lot of people have this, like they're passionate about whatever it is, like going to the gym or, um, you know, cooking or, or they have like a, a hobby of reading, uh, whatever. If they're passionate about it, they don't feel like they're sacrificing whatever else they could have been doing otherwise. So for me and our team at Shift, we don't feel like we're sacrificing our time necessarily. It's It's more we're doing something that's having a lot of impact. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, like, honestly, uh, from, but from the bottom of my heart, this, this has been the most, um, uh, valuable and rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, shift has been. So, you know, for me, I, I really don't see it as a sacrifice at all. Um, you know, practically speaking, of course, like it requires, um, it requires, you know, giving up certain things or, ha you know, not having time for certain things. But 
uh, I think for any entrepreneur, anyone wanting to start something, you have to really think about balance. If you think that you can just work on this a project for you know 24 hours a day, you don't need to sleep. I don't think that's very sustainable in the long run. You're probably going to burn out. Um, and so, you know, we, I try to make it sustainable. Our team is trying to do things sustainably. We recognize that everyone is a volunteer, that they all have, you know, full-time jobs. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's doing things sustainably. I think if you're really passionate about it, the framing changes completely. You don't even think of it as a sacrifice. It's something that you want to do and are more than happy to do. Um, and, you know, look, I'll say this. I, I think it's really important to do things with excellence. And we're taught this as Muslims. This is part of like one third of our faith is actually like Hassan and doing things with excellence. Um, you know, for me, uh, I, I want, one of the things I really want to make sure was that if I did shift and I really engaged in it, that I did not sacrifice my professional career. Uh, partly because, you know, I, you know, you, know it's, you want to support your family and you want to make sure you still have a professional career. But also it was a, it was, it was just, that's the right thing to do. Right. I don't want my people at work thinking like, look, this person's not working very hard. Uh, they're doing some other project and alhamdulillah, like I've, I haven't seen any, you know, objective way of saying that I've sacrificed my professional career. Um, and so I think it's important for people if they do these things, whether it's full time or part time is to do with excellence and not, uh, let some of these other commitments fall by the wayside. It's not sustainable to like give up your professional career to do something necessarily, or to give up your family life to do something that's like, you know, th these things are not, that's not the way to do it. There's ways to balance things and to do each of those elements with excellence, but it requires, you know, discipline and it will require it in the traditional framing, uh, you know, sacrifice. That's very well put, Fahad. Uh, you don't have to give up one or the other. You can actually harmoniously achieve both of them. The question is, you know, how disciplined you are and uh, really how much do you want it? How bad do you want it, right? And it sounds like uh, you, you want it really bad. That's why you've gotten this far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, the one thing, like, you know, we, we didn't really talk about, like, um, like just my, my, my motivation for even wanting to kind of give back. But a big part of it is as I was going through my career, and you sometimes, you know, especially on Bay Street, you work these long hours and you think about like, what am I actually adding to the world, right? Like, alhamdulillah, I'm making great, you know, I'm making great living for myself. I'm supporting my family. I have this great career. Um, it's intellectually stimulating. But what am I actually adding to the world, right? And that motivation, I find a lot of young people I talk to, they have that where they're working at all these different firms and they're very prestigious, have these great careers. Um, but they feel like they're missing something where I'm like, I, you know, I'm not really adding anything to the world or helping people or having that meaningful impact. And so, you know, if you, if you have that, that's probably the first step towards, you know, that, that you should be doing something more, or you could be doing something more potentially. So I just, you know, that, that was a big motivation for me. Um, a big motivation for why I'm willing to, you know, juggle all these different things is because I want to have that impact. Um, yeah, so I just wanted I just want to highlight that because I think I think a lot of young people, especially like especially young professionals, they really grapple with that. Is I feel fulfilled in this one sphere of my life, but I don't feel fulfilled in this other sphere where I want to give back and do more. Mm -hmm. And and what I'm saying is there's ways to balance that. And if you do feel that way, uh, you shouldn't just neglect it, but try to try to actually act on it. So that, that's actually a very uh, it's a, a scenario a, a scenario a lot of uh, young professionals find themselves in you know like they they get to a certain point in their careers and then they're like okay what's the next thing to chase right and you know we live in a developed world muslims living in a developed world uh, you know how can we practice more empathy and become more aware of these social challenges that are happening around the world because ultimately you and i are stewards together so what advice would you give to like a young adult who's looking to make his own mark um, 
I mean, look, I think, I think in terms of being aware of these social issues, I don't think that's a problem at all. I think everyone, especially with social media and technology, like people are well aware of the issues that the world is facing. Now, whether or not they're actually interested in those uh, issues is a different story. And for that, I would say one kind of practical thing to do is just um, think about the things that you should be grateful for, right? So, for example, and, and you know, people talk about like gratitude, you know, journals and things like that every morning, writing down five things that you're grateful for. You can do things like that, but even just mentally, if you're just grateful um, each morning you get out of bed, the fact that you have a bed, a roof, you can get out of bed, you have a, you know, a house, running water, electricity, health. Like there's so many things. And I think that mindset of being grateful is probably the first step towards bridging it to empathy of, wait a second, there's people in the world who don't have any of those things or have like one tenth of those things. And one of the things I really try to point home, uh, drive home to students when I talk to them, um, especially in, in the Canadian context and the North American context is you are already the, like the top 0.01% of the world in terms of like how uh, secure you are financially, uh, wealth, safety, you know, like all of those things. And so I think we owe it to the world to uh, give back, right? And one of the analogies I use is we've all won the lottery, right? We, we've all won life's lottery. Um, and so we owe it to give or to share some of those, you know, winnings or you know, proceeds with, with the rest of the world. And so in terms of empathy, I, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea of gratitude and what we have and what others don't have. Um, I also, and I've mentioned this before, I think empathy should be taught more explicitly or not empathy, but social impact should be taught more explicitly in schools. Right. Um, I think that's one of the ways, practically speaking, you know, there's different courses that people are taught, but at a young age, you could definitely do something on social impact. In fact, I have a friend who uh, every year shows, I think it's a grade three or grade four class, uh, a video about what Shift is doing. And just to get the, them into this mindset of like, look, uh, someone living here can have impact somewhere else and can help people in unique kind of interesting ways. And they find it interesting because it's like turning poo into power. But, you know, that the message there is so you can have impact and you should be thinking about what you have and what others don't have. I would love to go into one of those classrooms and, and give a presentation and kind of show them pictures. And this is how you go from point A to point B. And yeah. I, I don't think they're going to be grossed out. I think they're going to be inquisitive. They're, they're, oh, they they have a ton of questions. They're, they have they're, so they're many questions. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting. Like you tell it to an adult, and you know, typically adults also have very like they're very like fascinated by it. But they the adults get right into like, how can you do this? And what you know, what are the you know, they get into like almost like uh trying to find challenges. The kids are like amazed by it. They're like, You can do this? Of course. And like, why don't we do this here in Canada? Why don't we do this in our home? Like their minds just go to like a thousand different places, and it's actually incredible to see that because they're not they're not thinking of this like practical not necessarily like practical worldview and all these constraints they're just thinking about you can do this in our home we could recycle like our toilet like you know and so it's really interesting to to see that perspective and it's actually very refreshing like they get very very excited and energized by by the idea absolutely innocent brains but they're all you know thinking of solutions constantly as well right so uh fahad you know we've had a great discussion and i want to thank you personally for your time and, and all the great work you've done with SHIFT, not just in Pakistan, but also your future endeavors. And, and I'm really uh, optimistic, and I really, really look forward to your vision for 5, 10, 20 years down the road. Uh, if people want to learn a bit more about the work that SHIFT is, is doing, or they simply want to connect with you, Fahad, what's the best way to go about it? Uh, yeah, so the best way is probably through our website, uh, www.shiftwastenow.com. Um, if people want to connect with me, I'm always happy to connect on LinkedIn. Um, I'll try to be responsive. I, I, I'm always um, 
really happy to see people reach out. And in fact, uh, if, if people are interested in volunteering, please reach out. And all the volunteers we've had, almost all the volunteers we've had have been people who kind of just put their hand up and said, I love what you're doing. I want to help. You know, I don't know where, well, how I can help, but I just want to do something. And we found ways to really uh, leverage people's expertise, whether it's uh, social media or uh, logistics or you know finance. Um, there's all sorts of needs, and again, we're all volunteer based. So if anybody wants to reach out, we're always happy to. Uh, you know, we'd be honored to actually have you come help us. That's outstanding, and I can attest to that. Actually, he does reply really quickly on LinkedIn. That's how Fahad and I first connected. <laughs> uh, so, you know, just to conclude. <laughs> oh no! Now, now you made the promise. <laughs> uh, so, so thank you again, Fahad, for sharing your story with us. Uh, I certainly have a renewed appreciation for sustainability and recycling, uh, and the journey that you are going through uh, to, you know, to find a solution for a very global problem. And hopefully your call to action will inspire a lot of our listeners and our extended network to roll up their sleeves and become a part of something much bigger because ultimately, as I mentioned, we're all stewards for the planet that we live on. Uh, this concludes yet another edition of MaxCast. Uh, our goal will always be to bring you more guests that are leaving a positive footprint in our communities and truly elevating the brand of Muslims. For next time, my name is Daniel Sardar. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thank <laughs> you.